This episode includes discussions of the mass death of children. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under the age of 13. In the fall of 1966, 10-year-old Errol Mae Jones approached her mom with an odd story. She dreamt she went to school, but the building wasn't there. Instead, some kind of black mass sat in its place. Her mother brushed off the comment. She reminded Errol May that everyone has weird dreams at one point or another. Plus, it could have had something to do with the view from their house. The Jones family lived in Abervan, a Welsh town known for its coal mines. Across from them, workers often dumped mining waste on a hill. The top was so covered in debris, it looked like the tip of a black marker. Maybe the image had made its way into Errol May's subconscious and showed up in her dream. Except, the next morning, around 9.15, a pile of coal got loose from the hillside. It barreled down the slope, crushing everything in its path. Trees, houses, and Errol May's school. Her eerie vision had come true, but it was too late to do anything about it. And in the coming weeks, it became clear she wasn't the only one who'd foreseen the tragedy. If only someone had taken them seriously. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Premonitions Bureau, a 1967 experiment that tried to anticipate tragedies and save people before disaster struck. Today, we'll meet the residents of the British town of Abervan, some of whom reported ominous feelings right before the catastrophe. The event inspired psychiatrist John Barker to compile testimony from dozens of people who reportedly had premonitions. He hoped to prove it was possible to foresee future disasters. Next time, we'll review just how successful his study really was, and how Dr. Barker responded when his subjects predicted his death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Have you ever had a hunch that something would go wrong, and then it did? Maybe you had a bad feeling about an upcoming trip. You were uneasy, but couldn't pinpoint why. So you left home, arrived at your hotel, and took a quick shower. Then, as you stepped off the bath mat, you slipped and hurt yourself. Or maybe you were worried about your best friend who was getting married. Your concerns didn't have any apparent basis in reality. They seemed happy. Then, when the wedding day rolled around, they were left standing at the altar. These foreboding visions have a name. They're called premonitions. And in the 1900s, a British woman named Kathleen Lorna Middleton reportedly had a lot of them. Her story, and many others we'll discuss in this episode, were recorded in journalist Sam Knight's book, The Premonitions Bureau. The first one happened when she was about seven. Kathleen was watching her mom fry eggs on the stove when suddenly she saw an egg seem to float upward until it almost touched the ceiling. Kathleen's mom, Annie, took her to a local fortune teller to better understand what her daughter had seen. As the soothsayer listened, she grew concerned. She said the egg represented the death of someone close to Annie. Just a few weeks later, one of her closest friends passed away. She'd recently gotten married and was buried in her dress. Some suggested there was a connection between the white egg leaving the pan and Annie's friend in a white wedding gown leaving the world. As Kathleen got older, she became increasingly aware of her sixth sense. She said it was like knowing the answer to a spelling test. Names and numbers would strike her at random, each with a warning about the future. But Annie didn't appreciate her daughter's ominous visions. Life was hard enough. She didn't need to hear how much worse it was going to get, so she told Kathleen to keep her premonitions to herself. The girl stayed quiet until March 1941. It was a Saturday night, and Kathleen, now around 27, was sitting in her London home. Outside, World War II raged as German fighter jets dropped bombs all over the country. In spite of the ongoing combat, there was a St. Patrick's Day celebration happening at Prince Dance Hall, where Kathleen worked as a dance teacher. She'd been cooped up for so long, it was hard to stay home another night. 
so she and a friend decided to venture out. While they were on their way, Kathleen felt an eerie sensation. She'd seen enough of her premonitions come true to know to trust her gut. She grabbed her friend's arm and turned them around. While they stayed in and played cards, music blasted through the dance hall. Couples took turns sashaying across the floor. But at 8.45 p.m., a massive gust of air tore through the venue. Then everything went dark. When the dust settled, two people inside the dance hall and 43 passengers on a nearby bus lay dead. A bomb had exploded on the block, knocking a wall off the dance hall and destroying the vehicle. Thanks to Kathleen's intuition, she and her friend survived. While others were amazed by her sixth sense, Kathleen didn't think it was anything remarkable, certainly nothing to be concerned about. She once said, quote, I see no reason why this gift should be any more frightening than having a good head for mathematics. According to the Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight, Kathleen worked as a teacher and often shared her visions with her students. At times she complained she was overwhelmed by these glimpses of the future, but she could turn her gift off, so to speak, when she was too busy. That said, on October 20th, 1966, Kathleen couldn't shake the sense that something was very wrong. The 52-year-old could barely sleep and woke up the next morning gagging and struggling to breathe. She felt like the walls were closing in on her. That same morning, across the country in a Welsh coal mining town called Abervan, workers were preparing for another day on the job. They had to move waste from the mine to a tram that ran to a small hill called Merthyr Mountain. The scrap was dumped at the top. The local miners had been doing this for over two decades, which meant there were now tons of debris sitting on Merthyr Mountain. In recent years, the waste pile had grown so large, some of it occasionally destabilized and slipped down the hill. At the very moment when Kathleen Middleton was in bed gasping for air, a mine worker noticed the waste had slid down 10 feet overnight, and it was still sinking. He notified his boss, who ordered the crew to stop dumping there. They'd have to find a new spot. While the rest of the men took a brief tea break, crane driver Gwyn Brown stayed in his vehicle, where he had a view of the hill and the village down below. He noticed a heap of coal seemed to be hovering over Merthyr Mountain. He thought he must be seeing things, but in reality, the waste pile was heavy, tens of thousands of tons, and the pressure had compressed the bottom layers into a liquid. Like a volcano erupting, the fluid waste now spewed from the hill, creating an avalanche of toxic sludge. And it came crashing down, directly onto Abervan Village. The wave of debris barreled into farmhouses and swept over two local schools, Pantglass County Secondary and Pantglass Junior School. The former hadn't started classes yet, but unfortunately, the junior school was already in session. While students studied or listened to lectures, their doors suddenly collapsed inward and windows shattered. 
Bricks flew through the air. The chaos was followed by an eerie silence. A local hairdresser compared it to the sound right after you turn a radio off. Emergency workers rushed to the scene and started pulling bodies out of the rubble. They found one girl still clutching an apple. Others were horribly maimed. As more victims were recovered, the death toll reached 144. Most of the deceased were young children. Their bodies were taken to the largest church in the village, Bethania Chapel, and laid out on the wooden pews until their families could identify them. Within 24 hours, the disaster made headlines around the world. Many people were moved to help however they could. When authorities asked for gloves, they received 6,000 donated pairs. A couple days after the slide, 42-year-old psychiatrist John Barker visited the town. He specialized in what he called psychiatric orchids, his term for mental illnesses that weren't common. Dr. Barker had heard about a schoolboy who survived the Abervan incident, only to die of shock afterward. The doctor wanted to understand what had happened to him. But it was too soon to conduct a scientific study. When he arrived, parents were sobbing in the street. The wound was too raw. So Dr. Barker changed his plans and spent his visits just talking to people. And he noticed an odd trend. Several odd coincidences happened right around the time of the tragedy. The day of the disaster, a local school bus was delayed by fog. All the kids on board arrived at school after the disaster. Dozens of lives were saved. Another boy overslept for the first time ever. Apparently, he cried as his mother rushed him off to class. Moments later, he was caught and killed in the avalanche. Then there was the omen from 10-year-old Errol Mae Jones. The day before the deadly incident, she dreamt she was at school, but, quote, something black had come down all over it, end quote. Sadly, her prophetic dream wasn't enough to keep her out of school that day. The young girl died in the flood of coal waste. As he considered Errol May's premonition, Dr. Barker wondered how many other Brits had subconsciously known disaster was coming. He had a sneaking suspicion there were more clairvoyants out there, and he wanted to give them a chance to voice their warnings. Maybe they knew something the rest of the world didn't. Coming up, alarming visions about the future. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history. Because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. 
follow and listen for free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In October 1966, two schools in the Welsh village of Abervan were crushed by a heap of coal waste, killing 144 people. British psychiatrist John Barker believed a few townsfolk actually predicted the tragedy, and he wanted to learn more about their possible foreknowledge. It may seem odd that a mental health professional would be so quick to believe in the paranormal, but the Cambridge-educated doctor was more receptive to pseudoscience than many of his colleagues. He was part of Britain's Society for Psychical Research, an organization that studied psychic mediums and paranormal phenomena. This may have been because Dr. Barker had several experiences throughout his career that convinced him supernatural visions should be taken seriously. In 1952, he was treating a healthy man in his 40s who was certain he was about to pass away. Half an hour after Dr. Barker spoke to him, the man flatlined. Oddly enough, a post-mortem couldn't identify a cause of death. A couple of years later, another patient complained of chest pain. Dr. Barker asked if he thought he was about to die. The question instantly changed the man's demeanor. He was so taken aback, he didn't respond. A minute later, he did, in fact, pass away. This postmortem showed he had thickened arteries and weak heart muscles, but the cause of death was not determined. And one year before the Abervan disaster, Dr. Barker read about a young Canadian woman dubbed Mrs. A.B. She complained about incontinence, medical jargon for not being able to control her bladder. It can usually be fixed with routine surgery. But the night before her operation, Mrs. A.B. told her sister she didn't think she'd survive. When it was time to go under, she told a nurse she was certain her life was about to end. The doctors performed the surgery successfully with no complications. However, soon after Mrs. A.B. regained consciousness, the left side of her body erupted into pain and she went into shock. Her blood pressure collapsed. Moments later, she was dead. An autopsy showed a blood vessel had burst in her adrenal gland, though doctors couldn't identify any underlying conditions that would have caused the rupture. One physician later said, quote, It was as if she got up and died. The hospital staff eventually learned Mrs. A.B. had met a fortune teller when she was a child. They predicted she would pass away at age 43. True to the vision, she'd celebrated her 43rd birthday just a week before the operation. These seemingly inexplicable incidents inspired Dr. Barker to keep his mind open. Perhaps there was more to life than what could be explained through traditional science, and the Abervan disaster convinced him it was time to figure out exactly what that was. But first, he needed a sizable sample. It was time to collect a whole bunch of premonitions. He wrote to Peter Fairley, the science editor of London's Evening Standard newspaper. He asked a reporter to put out a nationwide call for Brits to share if they'd had any intuitions about Abervan. 
Fairley was no stranger to seemingly miraculous hunches. A few years earlier, he noticed the USSR put out a warning to ships in the Pacific. He had a feeling the country was up to something big. Perhaps they were about to launch their first manned spaceflight. His editors ran his prediction on the front page. Two days later, Soviet astronaut Yuri Gagarin flew into space. Fairley's bosses doubled his pay. So when Dr. Barker reached out about his precognition experiment, Fairley was game. In the ad he ran, he called for anyone who'd had a premonition about the Abervan disaster to reach out and share what they'd experienced. He cast a wide net, encouraging responses from people who'd had dreams, uneasy feelings, or even those who'd experienced telepathy. The paper had a circulation of about 600,000, one of whom was Kathleen Middleton, the woman who'd woken up choking and gasping on the day of the coal slide. She wrote in, as did many others, including a woman named Constance Milder. The night before the tragedy, she was about 160 miles away at a meeting. Suddenly, she had a vision. She immediately told her companions what she'd seen. She described it as an old schoolhouse, a Welsh miner, and, quote, an avalanche of coal rushing down a mountain. Her premonition featured a stream of coal headed toward a little boy who looked terrified. He survived, but he was heartbroken by the devastation around him. When Constance watched the news reports on the incident, she saw the very same boy on her TV. Hundreds of miles away, a man in Rochester had a similar sense of foreboding. R.J. Wallington was convinced there would be a national disaster on Friday, October 21st. He was so certain on the morning of the event, he told his secretary, today's the day. And several towns over, film technician Grace Richardson kept noticing an unpleasant scent. For days, she'd pick up the stench of rot. Her colleagues couldn't smell it. Approximately 15 minutes after the disaster, Richardson sprang from her chair in a panic, struggling to breathe. Her co-workers said her face was turning red. When she could catch her breath, Richardson announced something awful had just occurred. But nobody knew what it could be. None of them had heard the news yet. These premonitions were all intriguing. But one respondent stood out from the rest. 44-year-old Alan Hencher. When he was in his 20s, a car accident left him unconscious for four days. Once he came to, he started having intuitions. Usually, they started with a throbbing headache that only grew worse as the event approached. The day before Abervan, that familiar pain set in. Alan trembled, felt sluggish, and struggled to focus on his job. One of his co-workers asked what was wrong. Although he didn't know about the slide yet, Alan said there'd been some kind of catastrophe that had claimed many lives. Later on, when he saw the ad in the paper, Alan and the other respondents shared their premonitions with Dr. Barker. Report after report poured in, 76 in total. The sheer volume of them made him believe there was something real at play here, 
and he was eager to publish as many of the visions as possible. But he wasn't content to merely share anecdotes in a newspaper, even one as popular as the Evening Standard. He wanted to reach as big an audience as possible, which meant he needed an even bigger platform. Luckily, Peter Fairley frequently appeared on the BBC and the commercial channel ITV as an air science commentator. He brought Dr. Barker on television with him. They were an unusual yet dynamic duo. The reserved scientist and the boisterous newsman bounced off each other, united in their passion for premonitions. Their enthusiasm seemed to capture the attention of the British public. Eventually, one of the nation's leading television hosts, David Frost, invited them and several research subjects onto his show for a live interview. This was the first time many of the self-proclaimed psychics met the researchers in person. According to the Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight, the clairvoyants didn't make a very positive impression. When Fairley met them in the green room before the appearance, he was stricken by their eccentricity. But ultimately, the subjects weren't there to impress the researchers. They were there to share their gift with the world. Frost was supposed to bring out Dr. Barker, Fairley, and the psychics after he finished interviewing his first guest, an English poet laureate. However, the intermission came and went without the cue to go on stage. Before long, the episode was wrapping up, and Barker and Fairley still hadn't appeared on camera. After the show, Frost apologized to his guests. He claimed he lost track of time. Dr. Barker was furious about the apparent runaround, but Fairley understood why Frost might have second guesses about interviewing them. The Abervan disaster was still raw. Plus, the visions they'd collected were somewhat vague and all submitted after the fact. It would be easy for skeptics to poke holes in their methodology. Perhaps Frost didn't want to risk upsetting his viewers for a segment on research that wasn't airtight. If Fairley and Dr. Barker wanted to be taken seriously, they needed a different approach. They should record intuitions as people experience them, then see if they come true. This would prevent fakers from claiming they had visions after the fact. But to set up a study like this, they'd need to reach countless people. Any number of ordinary citizens who'd had bad dreams, uneasy feelings, or strange visions and didn't know what they meant. Then Barker and Fairley could compare their reports against real disasters as they happened. A review of that scope would require countless man-hours and resources. So the next step was to build a team and assemble a group that would come to be known as the Premonitions Bureau. Coming up, the great experiment begins. Now, back to the story. Despite the late show debacle, psychiatrist John Barker and journalist Peter Fairley were determined to put their findings on the map. If David Frost wasn't going to take them seriously, they'd find someone who would. Psychic letters in hand, they approached Fairley's boss who edited the Evening Standard. They pitched him the idea of a premonitions bureau, 
a year-long experiment where readers submitted their prescient visions. But Dr. Barker and Fairley didn't just want to document hunches. They wanted to evaluate how accurate they were in real time. They devised an 11-point scoring system. Each premonition could receive up to five points for unusualness, five points for accuracy, and one point for timing. This way, they could quantify the power and accuracy of precognition. When he heard their plan, the editor was in. In 1967, Fairley went on the BBC, publicly announcing he wanted to hear from anyone who'd experienced a, quote, dream or a vision or an intensely strong feeling of discomfort. He made two promises. No one who reported a premonition would be mocked, and the visions would remain confidential until the experiment was complete, with one exception. If any upcoming disaster seemed potentially deadly, and if enough people foresaw it, he'd publish a warning to hopefully save lives. Before long, the newsroom was humming with ringing phones and reporters feverishly clacking away on their typewriters. In its first two days, the Premonitions Bureau received around 20 warnings. According to Sam Knight's book, that number grew to over 10,000 in the following weeks. Fairley's assistant classified the submissions, dividing them into over a dozen categories, including royalty, fire, and non-specified disasters. Fairley hoped if the study was successful, he could help set up a national early warning system. He imagined this database would be linked to a computer that could instantly analyze warnings and inform the public of imminent disasters. Voila! Crisis averted. But months passed, and none of the reported visions came true. Maybe the Premonitions Bureau was a bust. Then, on March 21, 1967, around 6 a.m., Dr. Barker received a phone call from Alan Hencher, the post office worker who'd predicted the Abervan tragedy. Alan was upset. He'd just had a vision of a French passenger jet having technical issues after takeoff. He believed the plane would glide over mountains, then call for help before its radio cut out. He claimed there would be 123 or 124 people on board, and all but one of them would die. Even the survivor would be badly injured. Dr. Barker shared the prediction with the Evening Standard which was a violation of that confidentiality policy. But perhaps he figured the deadly plane crash was dangerous enough to count as an exception. And after all, Alan had already made one true prediction. Almost exactly one month later, a Britannia Airways plane was en route from Thailand to Switzerland. It was supposed to stop over in Egypt, but there was such heavy rain, they had to land elsewhere. Pilot Michael Muller headed towards Cyprus, although the weather wasn't much better there. But he didn't have many options. By the time the plane was ready to descend, Muller and his co-pilot had already been in the sky for nearly 10 hours, three hours over the standard aviation limit. 
The fatigue might have impeded their flying ability because the plane was deemed too high to clear its landing. Muller received permission to loop around the airport and try again. But as he circled through low clouds, the plane clipped a wing on the side of a hill. In a matter of seconds, the aircraft spun out, shattered into bits, and erupted into fire. The next day, the Evening Standard front page read, 124 die in airliner. Although the death toll ultimately climbed to 126, Alan Hencher's vision had essentially come true. He predicted what was then the sixth biggest plane crash in history. He'd also given the Premonitions Bureau its first hit. And Kathleen Middleton, the woman who woke up gasping for air on the morning of the Abervan disaster, would soon get them a second. In April 1967, Kathleen warned Dr. Barker that a tornado or hurricane would hit the west coast of the United States. Eleven days later, over 40 tornadoes swept through the Midwest. Not quite the West Coast, but Kathleen's prediction was partially correct. Days later, on April 23rd, she sent a note to Dr. Barker saying she saw an astronaut en route to the moon. She predicted his trip would end badly. That same day, Soviet astronaut Vladimir Mikhailovich Komarov flew into space on the Soyuz 1 spacecraft. A Soviet news agency, TASS, announced the launch, as did Radio Sweden. But Kathleen lived in the UK, so it's unlikely she saw either report. 18 minutes into the journey, Komarov noticed some issues with Soyuz 1. The solar panel wasn't working, and the star-sun sensor, which was necessary for navigating the dangerous re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, was covered in fog. To make matters worse, the fuel pressure was decreasing and the temperature inside the craft was dropping. Although the ship was supposed to link up with a second Soyuz vehicle, called Soyuz 2, the safety issues made it too risky. Soviet officials instructed Komarov to rest, then come home. Despite all the problems, the astronauts said, quote, I feel excellent. The mood is good. But when it was time to return, his first two attempts at re-entry failed. The spacecraft's engine malfunctioned, sending him back into orbit. As the capsule's battery ran out, Komarov made a third attempt. This time, he made it through, except the parachutes failed. There was nothing to slow the Soyuz descent. Moments later, the vehicle smashed to the ground in southern Russia and exploded into flames. Komarov was burned to a crisp. He was the first astronaut to ever die on a space mission, which made it all the more impressive that Kathleen had predicted the fatal accident. Although the crash was tragic, Dr. Barker was thrilled to now have documentation of multiple successful premonitions. But the day after Alan successfully predicted the plane crash, he called Dr. Barker at one in the morning. He said he kept seeing black whenever he thought of the psychiatrist. 
He was concerned something bad was going to happen to Barker. Later, Kathleen claimed to have similar worries. The psychiatrist had initially created the Premonitions Bureau to save others from tragedy. Now it seemed he was in need of rescuing. But if he could find a way to stop the visions from coming true, perhaps he'd live to see another day. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with part two of the Premonitions Bureau. For more information on Dr. Barker's experiment, we found the Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Ben Hanani, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Josephine Cahew, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Langsner. Our hosts are Richard Rossner and me, Molly Brandenburg. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death. Pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.